Okay, uh, we're back. Let's, uh, we got a lot of fireworks in this second session. We got uh, uh, the, uh, the, death, the, uh, the execution, the death of the Antichrist being described for us in Habakkuk 3.13, the second half of the verse. So go to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. You're probably already there already. And um, I don't know, somebody's giving me stuff like this. Just after that end of that message, last message, and I'm telling you, stay, don't love the things of the world. And people are giving me stuff from Mardi Gras, the, I don't know, I'm not going to tell you who it was, the couple, but right over there, right over there. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they give me stuff like the, the mystics of pleasure make China great again? I mean, what is this? Unbelievable. Half the front fun, twice the price, Do that? Gosh. So I don't know what you two have been doing down there at Orange Beach, but here it is. Must be, I gotta go down there, it's been a while, been a couple of months, so that's my bling. All right, and uh, well, uh, now we're gonna um, not only pray for the, uh, the message, definitely gotta do that, but uh, also pray for the offering. So let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us this privilege now to take a moment to express our gratitude toward you for all the logistical grace and spiritual blessings that you've provided for us. And we just thank you for the finances that you've given to us so that we can give back to you what you've given to us and be good stewards with the finances that you've given to us. And I thank you for those who you've raised up that have been good stewards with their finances and helping us in this ministry financially. Thank you for each and every one of them. And we just thank you, Father, that we can express our love and gratitude to you at this time. And again, Father, we, we don't have everything that we have has been given to us. These bodies, these souls, and the homes we have, and everything, the finances that we have, the jobs, salaries. So we're just giving back to you and giving back to you which you had given to us in the first place. So we just thank you again that you've given us this chance to express our love in this fashion. I also pray for this uh, second session, Father. Again, I thank you for all your children that are assembled here and the, and the chapel. And we think of the building that you've given to us to, to meet in, this beautiful building. And we just uh, pray that the Spirit would do a mighty work to all of us in this second session as we uh, delve into the, the poetic prophecy in Habakkuk 3.13 regarding the, the, your son, Jesus Christ, killing the Antichrist at his second advent. I just pray, Father, that the Spirit would speak to each person individually and all of us as a corporate unit. Uh, help us all to concentrate and to uh, learn, understand, and apply what's being taught in this passage. I pray it would motivate us to live the spiritual life, to keep short accounts with you, to also uh, look out for opportunities to evangelize the unsaved, and also uh, prompt us to pray for our unbelieving uh, contemporaries in our, in our prayer free Father. And also I pray that you would empower me as the communicator and thank you for the awesome responsibility and task that you've given me to teach your word to your people. And of course I can't do it without the gift that you've given me and also if it wasn't for the Spirit as well. And I pray the Spirit would use me mightily as his instrument to bring forth your full counsel today with accuracy and clarity, reverence and respect and power so that your people can receive the necessary spiritual, spiritual nourishment. And we know that uh, man does not live on bread alone but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And we know that the word of God is alive and powerful. So I don't know exactly what exactly what's going to transpire in this uh, second session, but I know the Spirit is going to do his work and do a mighty work through all of us. That I know. And it's in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, again, in the second session, we're going to look at the prophetic prophecy of Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 15. And uh, in particular, verse 13, we're going to wrap up our study of verse 13 by noting the Lord Jesus Christ will kill the Antichrist at his second advent. And so let's read the chapters we're doing. Then we're going to concentrate on the second half of Habakkuk 3.13. It says in Habakkuk 3.1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigayano. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now we have, beginning in verse 3 all the way to verse 15, 
We call it the Divine Warrior Psalm. It's prophetic poetry speaking of the, uh, primarily the second advent of Christ. We also have, uh, it's alluding to the, the, tri the tribulation, the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel called the tribulation by our Lord, the great tribulation, where he pours out his wrath against the Christ-rejecting world, those who oppose him and uh, the nations and its leaders, and with a seven seal trumpet and bold judgments. They culminate in the second advent of Christ, as we pointed out, which uh, means that at that time, Jesus Christ will come back bodily to earth, or orbit the earth, he'll come back with his bride, the church, and resurrection bodies and rewards for faithful service, and Old Testament saints in their resurrection bodies, tribulational martyrs in their resurrection bodies, and the elect angels coming back as well with us to start the kingdom on earth. Also at that time, of course, as we've been pointing out, uh, the Lord will remove, have the angels, elect angels remove Satan and his angels for a thousand years from this earth, and then he will himself, Jesus Christ, will destroy the tribulation armies, and he'll execute the false prophet who promotes the worship of the Antichrist, and also, of course, the Antichrist himself, who's called the man of lawlessness. Uh, he is the desecrator. Uh, he is the, uh, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. And he is spoken about extensively in the Old Testament. And you see it extensively in Romans. You see it in Second Thessalonians. He's mentioned. And uh, he is an important person that's about the part of his, actually his appearance on the earth. You could say, and it's true, is imminent. Because the rapture is what triggers the manifestation of the Antichrist. We know that from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, the, the church, which is indwelt by the Spirit, must be removed before the Antichrist can be manifested and make that treaty with Israel, which starts the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years of Israel's discipline from the Lord. So it says in verse 3, God came from Teman. This is prophetic of Jesus Christ at his second advent. Teman is in a place what we call today the kingdom of Jordan. So God came from Teman, the holy one from Mount Paran, Selah. Teman, Mount Paran, remember you studied Obadiah with me, and God uh, was uh, upset with the Edomites for their uh, treatment of the kingdom of Judah or the Babylonian invasions. Well, we saw the last Verses 17 through the end of that book speaks of God judging Edom. He judges Edom in the first 14 verses. And in the future he will as well because like Israel, she'll be a national entity again by the time the tribulation rolls around. So it says, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. That means that's the rest of the music. It actually talks about biblical meditation. Meditate upon what's being said there. Okay? His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. This is prophetic. His splendor was like the sunrise. He rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps, referring to the seven seal trumpet of bold judgments of Revelation 6 to 18. He stood and shook the earth. He'll do that at his second advent when he stands on the Mount of Olives. He looked and made the nations tremble and the ancient mountains crumble and the age-old hills collapse. Uh, the, there'll be a massive worldwide uh, earthquake at the time of the second advent when he touches the Mount of Olives. He'll never see the likes of ever again. It's never happened in history. And it will change the topography of Israel and Jerusalem and the entire earth. You will not recognize it. And then it says the, his ways are eternal. As we pointed out, it actually means the angel, uh, angels, processions of angels will follow him as we studied when we looked at that verse. I saw the tents of cushion and distress, the dwellings of Midian and anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? The seventh seal, trumpet of bold judgments, many of them deal with creation because uh, God's disciplining the human race, uh, judging the human race, so he's judging the creation. And he's striking the rivers, as we saw, and the various bodies of water during that time. You covered your bow. You called for your many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, and the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens. And we saw that in Zechariah 12 and 14, uh, that uh, just in the days of jo uh, Joshua. Uh, and uh, we saw that the, the earth, the moon, the star, uh, sun stood still, and the day was unlike any other day in history. Well, when Christ comes back at the second advent, this is what's going to happen. And he says, Sun and the moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. As we pointed out, he's talking about his deliverance of his people during this tribulation period at his second advent, which is the nation of Israel in context, born-again Israel, and in other words, you could look at the, 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 the 144,000 
uh, from twelve, uh, from each of the uh, twelve thousand, from each of the tribes of the twelve tribes of Israel, and Revelation seven and fourteen. Those he's speaking of those individuals to save your anointed one, and that's a anointed one's not talking about the Messiah, as we pointed out, Mashiach. It's actually more often than not in the Old Testament used not for the Messiah, Jesus, but more for Israel, and that's what it's referred to here. That's the reference here. Then we have you crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, as we'll see. That's the Antichrist being killed by Jesus. You stripped him from head to foot, Selah. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When, when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, the Jews living at that time, the, the born-again Jews, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who are in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. That's the end of the divine warrior psalm, that prophetic prophecy, and then it closes with an expression of faith on the part and joy on the part of Habakkuk, despite the fact that his country is about, is, uh, there's an imminent destruction of his nation about to take place. So it says in verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us when God destroys Babylon, who's about to destroy them. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. <clears throat> Excuse me. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on my string instruments. So the first and the last verse of the book indicate this is lyrics to his song, and it was also, this would indicate that uh, Habakkuk himself was a musician and more than likely a Levitical musician. So we see, if you look at verse 13 in your translation, it says in the NIV again, it says, you came out to deliver your people to save your anointed. And then it says, and this is what we're going to look at now, you crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Now, as I did in the first session, I should have brought it up, but I want to show you some translations of verse 13 because they're a little bit, uh, they're a little bit different in the NIV, but here's the NIV, uh, the Net Bible, which I highly recommend. Uh, great translation, great notes, by the way. You'll actually learn something. Good for scholars and lay people, pastors. You march out to deliver your people, to deliver your special servant. Then it says, you strike the leader of the wicked nation. That's the difference. Laying him open from the lower body to the neck, Selah. And my translation of this particular verse goes as follows. It says, you will certainly march out in order to deliver your people, specifically for the deliverance of your anointed one, Israel, at the second advent. You will certainly strike the leader from a house composed of wicked people by laying him open from head to foot. Now, Habakkuk 3.13 is containing four more prophetic poetic statements. This is prophecy and poetry all poured into one. Now, as we pointed out in the first session, the first uh, uh, two describe the Lord Jesus Christ delivering born-again, regenerate Israel during the second advent to Christ. And he's going to deliver them from Satan, his fallen angels. Remember, Satan and the fallen angels, according to the, uh, Revelation 12, and the midway point of the 70th week, when Antichrist desecrates the temple and declares himself God, we see that Satan and the fallen angels are thrown out of heaven. Revelation 12, by Michael and the elect angels. Remember, one-third of the angels fell, two-thirds went with God, and Michael, the elect angel, who the book of Daniel talks about is the archangel. He's the ruler angel, the preeminent ruler angel that watches over the nation of Israel even as we speak. And even when she was deported from the land and didn't have geographical boundaries, Michael was keeping an eye upon the Jewish people. He's the only elect angel that is watching over a particular nation. Uh, the other nations of the earth, including our own, and this is why we should pray for our leaders, uh, we have fallen angels that rule this earth, okay? And, and Paul has a passage in, in Ephesians 2 and 3 where he talks about the church composed of Jewish and Gentile believers are seated with Christ, and so they are going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second advent of Christ, the rules and authorities. And they don't want you to know that your God, you and I are going to dispossess them. They don't like it being taught and it's a reminder of their fate. So the first two uh, passages, uh, two, first two de uh, declarative statement, or we could say prophetic poetic statements, speak of the deliverance of the Jews, the regenerate Jews at the second advent of Christ. Now, 
Also, we pointed out, and we're going to look at these last two, the last two prophetic statements describe in graphic terms, as I'll show you, the, the Lord Jesus Christ killing the Antichrist at his second advent. And I said this before, uh, too many people have, a, in the church in particular, have a wrong perception of Jesus. Uh, they think of him as the God of love and mild and meek, gentle Jesus. Well, yes, he is. Uh, and when they talk about love, they don't really understand when they talk about love, the love of God, because they think of it as some kind of, uh, Jesus is some kind of sentimental grandfather or grandmother or parent, okay? No, Jesus uh, is, uh, is his love. He loves even the unlovely. He went to the cross for sinners who didn't even give a thought for him. Every one of us was unregenerate at one time, whatever that was, and we didn't ask for him to do what he did. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world by suffering the wrath of God so that we wouldn't suffer it forever in the lake of fire. And he lived a life of perfect obedience under the law that we could never do because we're sinners by nature and practice. So his love is able to love its en his enemies. Nobody sends his son to die for their enemies. You wouldn't send your only kid for, to, die, to die for your enemies, would you? I know I wouldn't, but God did that. Okay? So, yes, he's the God of love, but he's also, the reason why he had to go to the cross is also he's a God of holiness. Okay? His father and the son agreed to it, willingly, obviously, and the spirit, the father, the holiness of God must be propitiated, must be satisfied. He couldn't sweep our sins and the sins of the human race under the rug and slip us into the back door of heaven. Can't do that. He's a God of integrity. Justice and righteousness must be executed. And he did that. Instead of judging us, his son had to suffer the consequences for what we did. So we put him on the cross. We are the ones that do it. When I say we, the human race. Both church believers and unbelievers, we put him up there. So yes, he had, he, the, the fact that he's a God of holiness and that he couldn't tolerate sin and sinners unless there was a way provided uh, that it could satisfy his justice and righteousness, his holiness, well, that way was through his son. And by, uh, by that, uh, his holiness created an opportunity for him to manifest his attribute of love, which would never be, the extent to which he can love his creatures could never be realized unless we had fallen. Okay. So we know the depth of God. We, as church-age believers, we know the depths of God's love better than anybody else, okay? And so we know that God loves his enemies and that God is a God of grace, forgiveness, and patience, and tolerance. So when we talk about these things, these events in the tribulation period and the second advent of Christ, we always need to have this in the back of our minds that God doesn't want to do this, but he has to do it because he's holy, but he's doing these things too, even despite he's doing these things, he wants people to change their mind, repent is the word, for their attitude toward Jesus and believe. You know, the people down in Mardi Gras having a good time and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, doing the drugs, the sex, and the alcohol, whatever they're doing. Whatever they're doing in the world, you know, God, God sent his son to the cross for those people. He wants to save those people. And heck, many of us probably were one of those people who were down dancing around Mardi Gras and flashing people for all we know. I don't know where you guys have been. You don't know where I've been. But I'll tell you what, God can save people like you and I that are they're, they're ready for the pit of hell. And he did. And that's the extent that God loves his enemies. Amazing. So we see that the last two prophetic statements describe in graphic terms the Lord Jesus Christ killing the Antichrist. And there's nothing, as I said in the first session, there's nothing in Old Testament history which corresponds to these four statements. However, they do correspond to the prophecies in both the Old Testament. We saw two of those passages in Zechariah 12 and 14. Uh, also the prophecies in the New Testament concerning the Lord Jesus Christ delivering born-again Israel from Antichrist at his second advent. And the first statement in Habakkuk 3.13, as we pointed out, asserts that the Lord Jesus Christ will certainly march out in order to deliver his people. As we saw in the first session, and we closed with it, Zechariah 12 and 14, those chapters, magnificent, majestic chapters, speaking of the, the tribulation, and the, in particular the second advent of Christ, which ends the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation, and Revelation 19, 11 through uh, chapter 20, verse 6, all teach those passages, and there's many more. Uh, we can see Obadiah, 17 to the end of that chapter. The portions of Zephaniah have a lot of uh, prophecies about this. Jesus will deliver regenerate Israel at his second advent from the devil and his fallen angels, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and unregenerate Gentile armies of the tribulation period. Now, the third prophetic statement, as we see in verse 13, asserts that the Lord Jesus Christ will certainly strike the leader 
originating from a house composed of wicked people as I have it in the, from the Hebrew. And this striking refers to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ will physically attack the Antichrist so that as to cause the leader's death. So if you look at your translations, the NIV, it says you crush the leader. Uh, the, the Net Bible says you strike the leader. Well, the, uh, just this is from, I'm showing you my notes, my exegesis and exposition of Habakkuk 3, 13 and 14. You can get it on winstrom.org. It's on the Academia EDU website. But the word there uh, that we have that uh, is being used by um, this, uh, the writer Hebrew under uh, Habakkuk under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is era. And this, uh, excuse me, the word for strike actually is mahas. And this word means the uh, strike. Okay, so the Net Bible has it. So this mahats is the word to strike. The Net Bible translates it correctly. And I have it that way as well because the word pertains to the causing severe injury to someone to the extent of causing their physical death as an extension of striking or beating. And this is taken from uh, Swanson's Lexicon, uh, Dictionary of Semantic uh, Domains, and uh, you can go and uh, look, look it up with me if you want. I, I, I cite it. So this word, when he says strike or crushed, and you, as your NIV says, it, it pertains to causing severe injury to someone to the extent of causing their physical death as an extension of striking or beating. And of course, the referent here is the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, this word is expressing uh, the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ striking the leader who we, of the house of wicked people, which is uh, Antichrist, as we'll say. And this is a... Uh, and so as to cause his death, his physical death. And what's interesting, the perfect tense of this verb is what we call a prophetic perfect in Hebrew grammar. It's, it's speaking of the certainty of this event taking place. In other words, I said it, it's as good as done. That's what God's saying with the prophetic perfect. So we see here that the word for leader, now we're going to identify this word for leader. Uh, what did the, uh, the Net Bible, uh, the NIV have? Yeah, they have leader as well, Okay, obviously pretty cut and dry, but what is this word, leader? It's the word Rosh in Hebrew, and it's the Antichrist, and this is supported by the fact that I adhere to the eschatological, the prophetic interpretation of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, and thus it's prophetic of the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ. Secondly, this leader has to be the Antichrist because he will be head of a 10-nation European confederacy, which will be the final stage of the Roman Empire during the 70th week and the second advent of Christ. Thirdly, we see the second and third prophetic statements here in Habakkuk 3.15, or 14, excuse me, speak of the Lord killing this leader. And it's, like you see, it's referenced in verse 15 as well. And Revelation chapter 19, verses 20 and 21, asserts that he will kill the Antichrist at his second advent. So the word for house, where it says, uh, this is another, uh, it says wicked nation uh, in the Net Bible. The NIV says, where do they have? They have uh, da, 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 the land of wickedness, which is quite interesting that they have that. So the word bayit is in the, in the passage. It means house. It actually refers to the house of Satan in context, or the empire which Satan has built, which opposes God. It speaks of a race of moral, rational creatures, and specifically human beings, who originate from Satan because the devil is their father. Remember, if, you don't, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a child of the devil. John 8, 44, Jesus told the Jewish leaders. In fact, the minute you begin, begin, believed in Jesus as your savior, you're no longer a child of the devil, you became a child of God. You didn't earn it or deserve it, it's because of the merits of the object of your faith, that you are such a child of God and always will be. And the word rasha, wicked people, it refers to unregenerate humanity who are children of the devil. So the fourth prophetic statement asserts that Jesus will lay open the body of this leader from the house composed of wicked people, and he'll do so from head to foot. It serves to explain the third prophetic statement in that it describes how the Lord will kill him. So if you look at my article again, on this passage, and let me uh, uh, scroll down to show you the, uh, the, the text. So the word era, it, we see it's uh, this word, it's in the PL, infinitive construct, you don't need to know that, but it means to lay bare. Okay, the word literally means to lay bare, but it pertains to exposing or stripping something in the sense of having no covering on an object or person with the implication of destruction to the point of humiliation. So in other words, he's splitting them open, 
is what he's doing. He's laying his, his bare, his organs. It speaks here of the Lord Jesus Christ laying bare the physical body of the Antichrist from head to foot at his second advent in the sense of exposing his physical organs. It ain't going to be pretty. You know, he comes back with blood on his garments, splattered all over his garments. If you've ever been in war, I've never been in combat. I've never seen anybody killed, all right? But some of the guys in this place have seen people get killed, decapitated, blown up. It's, and it's, you know, it's not pretty sight, okay, from talking to guys. And you don't want to experience that. But if you have, they know what that's like. Jesus is going to come back and the divine warrior himself is going to take this man of lawlessness, who's the epitome of shaking his fist at God, which all the world is going to run after one day. This charismatic leader, this boastful leader that hates Jesus Christ, who is a son of the devil. He's part of the satanic trinity, Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet. They oppose the triune God, and he is going to shake his fist one last time at our Lord, and the Lord's going to say, goodbye. And it's going, to be a, it's going to be a violent death for the Antichrist. It, we, this is the only passage, uh, you got Revelation, but this, this is the only passage that really explicitly tells you what he's going to do to this guy. How do we know this? The word era, lay bare, it pertains to exposing or stripping something in the sense of having no covering on an object or person with the implication of destruction to the point of humiliation. Here it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ laying bare the physical body of the Antichrist from his head to, to his feet at his second advent in the, in the sense of exposing his, his, his uh, physical organs. So therefore we can say in this fourth prophetic statement, it's explaining how the Lord Jesus Christ will kill the Antichrist, namely by laying bare the organs of the body of the Antichrist from head to foot in the sense of exposing his organs. So, uh, you know, we, we, all, we all love peace. Everybody in the world wants peace. You know, there are some, in some cases, especially now in, our, in, the, in the time the Satan's ruling this world, you just can't get around war, you know? And there are sometimes violence is needed to stop evil, okay? Because evil will not stop. Evil can be arrogant. It's, it's evil is arrogant and stubborn and will fight. And there's only one way to stop such people like the Antichrist is to physically kill them. And that sometimes is, uh, you, you want to not have to get to that point. You are, we, we would like to negotiate and, you know, never let us not fear to negotiate, uh, you know. But uh, at the end of the day, some people don't want to negotiate. They want to fight. And then what are you going to do with Nazi Germany or Japan? The, the empire of Japan does what they do. And so uh, we got another empire that's coming. We know for sure. And it's going to be Antichrist's final stage of the Roman Empire. He'll resurrect Europe and there'll be a superpower. The United States is not found in prophecy. They're gone. Most, more than likely, either destroyed itself, falling apart, being a shell of itself, destroyed by your foreign armies, or the church is raptured and we're a shell of what we used to be. Because our military has pretty much covered Christians all over the place. Still despite all the, the, the woke things. So we see that this, this violent, this Antichrist, this, this guy is going to be, have an empire that is, an, was a, is part, it's a resurrection of the Roman Empire. And he is going to be a Roman dictator, as we've been pointing out in our Day of the Lord series. So we see that the fourth prophetic statement in, in Habakkuk 3.13 is explaining how the Lord Jesus Christ will kill the Antichrist, namely by laying bare the organs of the body of the Antichrist from head to foot in the sense of exposing his organs. So Habakkuk 3.13 concludes with the word Selah, in the Hebrew Selah, you can, they pronounce it, you can pronounce it any way, Selah, Selah. So this is the third and final time in the book of Habakkuk that this word appears. And here in Habakkuk 3.13, it's calling the hearer, you and I, to pause and to meditate upon the, these four prophetic statements in this verse. What's the point of it? To think about it. How does it apply to me? And I brought out that at the end, and I've been trying to do this throughout this uh, study of uh, the Divine Warrior Psalm, and in our Day of the Lord series, and I'll continue to do so. Uh, it makes me think, how should I live now? How should I think now in light of what's going to come? I'm going to be having a ringside seat with this. I'm the bride of Christ. I'm going to be right there with Jesus. So I don't want to live like the devil's people live. I don't want to live, in the, live according to the standards of the devil's world. I want, to, I want to live my life in a place, in a fashion that's honoring to Jesus Christ, that's consistent to what he did for me and I, my justification and what he's doing for me now, what he's going to do for me in the future. So both the Old and New Testaments prophesy 
of this man that Jesus is going to kill at his second advent. He will, he will live during the 70th week of Daniel and he will rule the entire world as a great tyrant. Satan is behind his power and it'll be the most, he will, this individual will be the most wicked individual in the history of the world. And if you saw highlights of what he's good, God could show you what he's going to do. You say, you, people, if you show the people of the world some of the things he'll be saying and doing during that time, you say, what's so bad about this guy? But it proves, my, it proves the point that I learned from uh, uh, R.B. Thien Jr. way back, where not, you know, all, evil is, all sin is evil, but not all evil is sin. Because sin, evil, the essence of evil, is independence from God. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, describing not the king of Babylon, though it starts off that passage about the king of Babylon, it describes the devil himself leading a coup d'etat Against, against the Lord, and it's put down. And he has five great I wills. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Independence from God is the essence of evil. Okay? We sin because we seek to live independently of God. This man is called the man of lawlessness. He is, this, he is the chief, of, amazing individual, and yet he will be the biggest peacemaker to ever hit this earth, He'll make, he'll, he'll, people make, people forget about any great leader, peace uh, individual of the past and modern times, anywhere. Nobody will touch this guy. He'll be able to patch up the Arab-Israeli thing. He'll be able to bring peace to Israel. He'll actually help her build her temple, I believe, because he, he has access to that temple and he's a Gentile. How are they going to let that? The Orthodox Jews are going to let him have access to that if you read between the lines. Probably because he's helping us build this. How are they going to be able to build this when you got the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim mosque, sitting up at the top of that, at that mountain there? How are you going to do that? With the temple, the remains of Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Herod's temple, lay below it. How are you going to do it? I don't know how they're going to do it. It's going to happen, though. God's word says it. Doesn't mean I have to know, you have to just accept it by faith that God's going to work it out and they're going to build that temple and he's going to help them build it. And he's going to be the, the greatest tyrant the, script, the, the world has ever seen. The Bible talks extensively about him and it's because he wants God's people to know about this. Not just the people who are going to be living at this time because it'll be important that they identify who he is and the word of God will be able to identify them. But you should also, this is very important, and I was going to say this at the end of the second, first session, but I didn't. God, I know why he wanted me to say it now. It's learning this stuff about the Antichrist will help us protect us from false doctrine. We're going to study a passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. We get to that book after 1 Thessalonians. There was somebody going into Thessalonica saying the day of the Lord had begun. It had begun. You know, he's talking about the eschatological day of the Antichrist, the tribulation period, and this, all that, okay? And they were upset, okay? He doesn't want us to have exposed, if we're exposed to false doctrine, he doesn't want us to be deceived by that false doctrine. So it's important, even though we aren't going to be experiencing these things and being having uh, a personal interaction with the Antichrist or have to run from him, okay? Uh, we're not going to be there during this time. We're removed from the earth at, at the rapture. And so we don't get to go through this, thank God. But we can protect ourselves from false doctrine and our brothers and sisters in Christ because there are going to be people out there that are saying that this guy is walking the earth now. I'll guarantee you, after this next election, whoever won, the other saying, there's the Antichrist. I'll guarantee you. You know? Oh, it's this guy who's going to make China great again or is it the other guy? I mean, I'll guarantee you there'll be some knuckleheads will be saying that. And I don't want you to fall for them because the scripture is explicit about this guy. It's explicit about, so you can help your the church and protect itself from false doctrine about the Antichrist. He is going to be a Roman dictator, a Gentile. He's not Jewish, okay? He's a Gentile, and he's going to be from Rome. And we know this, the scriptures tell us this, and I'll show you. The scriptures give this man many titles. He's called the beast in Revelation 13, 1 and 2. And he's called the prince that will come in Daniel 9, 26 and 27. He's called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. He's called the scarlet beast in Revelation 17, 3. He's called the willful king in Daniel chapter 11, 36 through 40. He's called the man of sin and 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. And he's called the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And also the desolator in Daniel 9, 27. The Antichrist, 
He's, all, he's, he's also uh, called the Antichrist in Scripture, but he's also will not appear, appear until the day of the Lord has begun, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. And its manifestation is being hindered by the Holy Spirit and dwelling the members of the church. That's according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And this appearance will be preceded by the rapture of the church, that's according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And so we're gonna, we might have enough time to go to that passage, but I, want, I have a couple other things I want to go to. I want to go to Daniel 7 and Daniel 9 before we end the lesson. But we see that Daniel chapter 7, well, before I tell you that, the Antichrist will be a Gentile. We know that. Since he arises from the sea, it says. He's the first beast in that passage, Revelation 13. And so we see that the sea depicts the Gentile nations. That's not my opinion or guesswork. Revelation 17, 15, the spirit in the context of that book tells us that the, the seas, the great seas, are a picture of the Gentile nations. He must be, therefore, of Gentile origin, and he will arise from the Roman Empire, because he's a ruler of the people who destroyed Jerusalem. People, we're living in exciting times because the Europe has been trying to unite for a while now. You have the European common market. There you go. He's coming out of there. Rome, its empire, was primarily Europe. And of course, they stretched to the Middle East and they stretched down to Northern Africa and they went out to, you know, they went as uh, far as extreme as the, uh, the Middle East, way out there in, into Babylon. So they went all over the place, okay? We know that, all right? But the United States of Europe, okay? The, we, we have a 10-nation European confederacy that he will lead. Okay, so you can understand why I don't think the church is going to be around. In fact, they know it's not going to be uh, the church. When the church is not around, the country, the United States, that we know is not around because who's the chief benefactor of Israel today and has been since World War II? It's the United States. So why, when if the United States was around, why would you go and turn to him? Because the United States is not there to help for whatever reason. Maybe the rapture. Maybe it just falls apart from civil war which could happen, and we break apart into all kinds of small satellites. Wouldn't be the first time that's happened in history. Look at the Roman Empire, divided into east and west, right? So Daniel chapter 7, verse 21 and verses 22, identifies him as the little horn and asserts the following about him. And we'll go here. And you, in fact, you can go while I'm talking to you. Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In fact, we'll, I'll turn with you, and I'll show you this point. Go to Daniel chapter 7. You don't have to hold Habakkuk. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. Now, Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, identifies him, the Antichrist, as the little horn, and it asserts the following about him, and we'll read this in a moment. One, he will be, he will persecute the saints of the Most High, and is thus a person. And Daniel 7.24 says that he's a king. So he's a ruler. Two, he will overcome the nation of Israel and will bring that nation under his authority. We know that from Revelation 12, verses 13 through 17, and Revelation 17.7. 7. Three, he will be judged by God. We saw that in Habakkuk 3.13. But he also see it in Revelation 19, verses 19 and 20. And Israel will thus enter into enter, enter, her millennial reign. And uh, we see that Daniel 7.23 reveals that the little horn will have a worldwide kingdom. The Antichrist will have a worldwide kingdom. Compare that with Revelation 13.7. And it will be an overwhelming conquest which anticipates a coming one world government under a worldwide dictator. We also see that Daniel 7.25 corresponds to Revelation 13.1-10 and gives us three more additional facts about the Antichrist. One, he will oppose God's authority as indicated by the phrase, he will speak out against the Most High. You can compare that with Revelation 13.6. And number two, he will oppress born-again Israel as indicated by the statements in Daniel chapter 7 as we'll read in a minute. Wear down the saints of the highest one. And three, he will abolish the Levitical sacrifices in the rebuilt temple and institute the worship of himself. And you can compare Daniel 7.25 and 2 Thessalonians 2.4, 
with that. Also, we see that Daniel 9.26 indicates that this little horn will be a Roman dictator, and it says that he'll pretend to be Israel's benefactor, Daniel 9.27, make a seven-year treaty with Israel, break the treaty in the midway point, and persecute Israel to the second advent of Christ when he's executed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7 uh, is speaking of the times of the Gentiles in which we're presently living. It started with the Babylonian invasions of the southern kingdom of Israel. It'll end with the second advent of Christ. It's a time when God's judging the nation of Israel for their rejection of him. A small remnant in every dispensation and every generation is found in the nation of Israel, the remnant, uh, remnant of Israel. The light's just going on a little bit stronger. And so that was weird. And so uh, the Israel, we see that, uh, the, that uh, Daniel chapter 7, that kind of distracted, that was kind of weird. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2 talk about the times of the Gentiles. And Daniel chapter 2 talks about it from the, from the human perspective. But when you look at Daniel chapter 7, it speaks from God's perspective. So it talks about four great world empires. The last one is, uh, has a little bit of a different thing happen to it. It, it, it's, it has a final stage to it that speaks of the Antichrist kingdom. Daniel chapter 7 speaks of God's viewpoint of these nations, these empires. In other words, it tells us that God thinks the nations that we have today, including our own, are beasts. I mean, look at the way they conduct their business. Why do you think we have so many wars? And why do you think their peoples are, peoples are oppressed? And you have these tyrants throughout the world, and their people are starving, and yet they have money. Look at the guy in Korea, North Korea. Yeah, I mean, you get the guy in Russia. You get the guy, for the, I mean, we've had all kinds of tyrants there. Germany with Hitler, you know what I mean? We're beasts. Nations are, we're just treat, we're the epitome of being, of being beast-like. And that's, the, and that's what God looks at the world, looks at nations like that. And he looks at many of the leaders like that. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was laying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion. And it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. This is the Babylonian Empire. And it's interesting, I said this in our Day of the Lord study, I think last past Wednesday, I'm not sure. But I said it. It's interesting. If you look at the history of the interpretation of Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2 and these four great empires, chronology-wise, Pretty much everybody's in agreement. There's some variations, but the majority says this. Babylon's the first beast, Medo-Persia the second, Alexander's Greece is the, the third empire, and Rome's the fourth beast. Okay? So it says, four great beasts, different from each other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its, its, mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Description of these empires. That's Medo-Persia that followed Babylon, defeated Babylon. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And uh, the, the beast, the animals in which these nations are depicted, kind of describe these empires. And the leopard is, speaking of Alexander the Great's empire, which was so fast like a leopard was in the jungle. And uh, he conquered like nobody ever done before. Well before there was the Blitzkrieg, we had Alexander the Greek and his, his empire. And it had four wings on its back, which is interesting, like those of a bird. And this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. The four heads speak of the four rulers that followed Alexander the Great after his death, and they divvied up his Greek empire. Look at history. There it is. In fact, when I said this on last Wednesday, Josephus records that when Alexander the Great was approaching Jerusalem, the high priest ran out with his Old Testament, Daniel, and he showed Alexander the Great this passage. There you are. And he was like, we won't touch Jerusalem. That's it in Josephus. So here's the, t here's the next one. The fourth beast is 
Rome. Now listen to this description. If you, if you know history and read the great books on history about Rome, uh, the, the, which is like Edward Gibbon, you ever read his thing on the Rome, rise and fall of the Roman Empire, uh, it's Michael Gray. There's all kinds of books on the Roman Empire. You go to my, if you come to my house and you see books, there's a lot of books on the Roman Empire, okay? Big uh, thing on the Roman Empire because it's part of the Bible, the history of the Bible. It's a tremendous right spot on description. Of course it would be. It's from God, the Holy Spirit, of the Roman Empire here in Daniel 7, 7. After that, in my vision, I lo- at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. What are these ten horns? Well, I was thinking about the horns there before me was another horn, a little one, who's this guy, which came up from among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Okay, so the little horn speaking of a person. As I look, now we have an interlude in heaven. Watch. As I looked, thrones were set in place. In the Ancient of Days, the Father took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool, and his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, and coming out before him, thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were open. Then I continued to watch. Because of the boastful words, the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain. And its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, a picture of Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. That's his ascension and session at the right hand of the Father, predicted by Daniel. In fact, Jesus alluded to this. And is that when he was uh, standing before, uh, uh, not the pilot, but the high priest, okay? And that's he tore his garments. You know, that's what he's talking about. And he was, that's why he got upset with Jesus, because he knew what he was talking about on the fulfillment of this passage. That's it. I've had enough of Jesus. Verse 14, he, has, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. This is true of Jesus during the millennial reign. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached one of those standing there, an elect angel, and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me, and he gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts of four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom, and it will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever, millennial reign. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. The Roman Empire, read the history, Tacitus, Josephus, Herodotus, is unbelievable, okay? They, they rule for a thousand years. I also want to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up which were before the three of them fell, and the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had an eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. That's during the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. Until, he'll do this, until the Ancient of Days came, the Father, and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast as a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. History tells us it's Rome. It will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. And that's exactly what it did. In fact, the people who started this country, the first 150 years of this country, are descendants of the Roman Empire. Think about that. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. This is yet future. We haven't yet seen anything like it in history yet. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, and he will subdue these three kings. That's the Antichrist, the little horn. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. He's he's going to abolish the Mosaic law, uh, the the practice of the the uh, the, um, the, uh, sacrifices in in the temple that's being rebuilt. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and a half time, times a year, Times two years, half time, three and a half years. The last three and a half years of the 70th week, 1260 days. That's the first time we have reference to the last three and a half years of the 70th week. And the 70th week hasn't been talked about yet in the book of Daniel. It shows up in chapter 9. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. 
That is the demise of the Antichrist. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. And this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now quickly, go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression. Speaking of the Jewish people and the city is Jerusalem. The seventy-sevens, as I said in the first session, in the Day of the Lord series, the, six, the 70 weeks of Daniel, 490 prophetic years, 60, 69 of which 483 of these years have been fulfilled in history in detail. We're just waiting for the, the last week, the 70th week, to begin. And it can't begin until the church is gone. So it says... 77 to decree for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, the corporate sin of Israel to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring an everlasting righteousness, the millennial reign, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes. There'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. The, uh, the book of Nehemiah talks about this decree. Artaxerxes Longamanus, 444 B.C., said, let's go rebuild the temple at the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah 2 talks about this. Okay? And the, six, the seven sevens is the, of the, of the first is equivalent to 49 years. It's run contiguous with the 62 sevens, which is 434 years. Put them together, you got 483 prophetic years. This is what we've been studying in the Day of the Lord series. If you've been going to those classes or listening to them, you know what I'm talking about. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, that's Jesus now, will be cut off, executed, and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. So the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people destroy the city and the sanctuary. What is he talking about? That's fulfilled in history too. 70 AD, the Romans, remember that four-year war, 66 to 70, destroyed, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. It's to record it for us in Josephus. Okay? The ruler doesn't do this. There's a ruler that comes from these people. Okay? That tells us the ruler, who's the he in verse 27, who makes a covenant with with Israel, then breaks the covenant, he comes from the Roman people because he's the ruler from the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, the Romans. He, that ruler who comes from those people who destroyed the temple of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem, he will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven, seven years. In the middle of the seven, three and a half years into it, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay, so they're going to restore the Levitical offerings and sacrifices when they rebuild the temple. Okay? Remember, the Jews aren't regenerate yet, so they're still keeping the law, okay? And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination. That's in the plural in Hebrew. It's abominations. That causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So there is the Antichrist... And Daniel 9.27, Daniel chapter 7. Now, uh, we see that he's coming to his demise. And if close, one, one last passage. Look at Revelation chapter 19. We'll close. I promise. I won't take you to the Super Bowl game. I'll stop before the Super Bowl begins at 6.30. But look at Daniel. Uh, <laughs> Revelation 19.11. I'm sure I think pretty much all of you say, yeah, let's go for it, brother. We'll just bring in pizzas and we'll keep hanging on here. And I can go all night. So, look at that. of course, you don't want me to because I'll, uh, you'll get sick of me. Uh, look at Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice he judges and makes war. Picture of Jesus, of course. His eyes are blazing like fire, speaking of judgment. It's apocalyptic literature. It's figurative language, speaking of real things and the real characteristics of Jesus. And on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself, because he's unique. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, elect angels, 
church and resurrection bodies decorated with rewards for faithful service. Uh, tribulational martyrs and resurrection bodies decorated with rewards. Old Testaments, prophets, saints, uh, and resurrection bodies decorated with rewards. We talk about armies here, legions and legions and legions. Oh, how I want to be in that number. Guess what? We're in that number. <laughs> I don't know. I'm excited. I don't know about you, but the heck, the Super Bowl, really. Come on. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations who are under the deception of the devil, right? And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, genitive subordination there, uh, king ruling over kings, and the Lord ruling over the lords. And he says in verse 17, he says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free, slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast, Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. So they went from shooting at Israel, trying to destroy her and each other, and turning their guns at us. And it's no contest. First, I was watching this uh, Ali fight, uh, Muhammad Ali fight uh, uh, with not Ernie Terrell, uh, what's his name? Cleveland Williams. And the announcer goes, and he's doing the shuffle, and he just destroyed this guy. I don't even know if the guy even laid a hand on him. He goes, no contest. That's what this is going to be. Okay? Heck with the Ali shuffle. This will be the Lord crushing him. Okay? There's no contest. This is like Rocky Marciano. Boom, I'm just going to knock you out like he knocked out George Wilcott. Go to sleep, baby. You're out. Okay, put him to sleep. He says, and the, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So the beast is captured, but as Habakkuk chapter 3 says that he was executed. 13, 313. And his soul and his resurrection body that allows him to go to eternal condemnation, him and the false prophet, are thrown into the lake of fire before Satan is and his fallen angels. Chapter 20, verse 1, no break in the chapter, in the original. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain, and he sees the dragon. And the, that ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Because that's what he's doing now, people. Until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So... Give praise to God that you're now in that number. You're going to come back. You're on the winning side. And we know what the Lord's going to do uh, in the future. He wants us to know that so we can evangelize and give people, as I said before, people, you know, I was talking to Rex uh, between the breaks, and he's talking, he was saying, uh, with the, uh, what was that thing, Rex? The, um, the, the psychics. He was watching this thing on psychics. You weren't, you weren't calling the psychics, I hope. No. So he was saying these psychics, and you want to learn about the future, I told you. Of course, the unbelievers want to know about the future. That's why they hit the psychics on, like hotline all the time and read their horoscopes. Well, we can tell them what the future is going to happen. We can also protect people from false doctrine when they're saying, well, this ruler is the, is, uh, is the Antichrist, or this one's the Messiah. We can protect ourselves from false doctrine. We can evangelize, knowing this information, we can evangelize the unsaved and tell them, you can avoid this wrath that's coming upon the earth. And you know what? As things get worse in our country and around the world, and they will, they're going to come walking, looking, and they're going to come looking for answers. They're going to be terrified. I mean, just think about the way our country is now. We are such a bunch of babies. I mean, I got, you know, especially, I mean, I hate to say it, but I sound like an old fat now, but the Z generation, they got to take a pill. I got anxiety. I mean, the Japanese and the Chinese should just attack because, wait a minute, I got to get my medication. You know, I, I, you know, in my father's generation, let's go fight, okay? I'm afraid we'd have to, at 62 years old, I might have to go out in the battlefield, fight the Russians and the Chinese or whatever, but whatever. I'm just going to stand behind, uh, what's his name, um, what's Jack Reacher over here, Bob Weekly. I'll just go. 
I call him Jack Reacher, the older version. But so, we gotta be ready. We gotta ready. <laughs> you like that one, I like that too. We, we gotta be ready for this time that's coming upon us because it's happening. And we gotta be ready and on our toes, living the spiritual life that we said before. You know, fulfilling our responsibilities and our duties as soldiers of Christ Jesus. Living, being spirit, putting on the full armor of God, taking the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the combat boots of the gospel, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, prayer, and to live the spiritual life and fight our invisible enemy and become an invisible hero with an invisible impact in our country and an international impact, in our, in our national impact, and an angelic impact worldwide, okay? And to fulfill our responsibilities and, and in relation to our husbands and our wives. Love your husband as under the Lord, obey him in all things as under the Lord. And husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Parents, raise your kids up in the ways of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in all things as under the Lord. Every single one of us, whatever you do, in this church, at your job, at home, whatever you do, do everything as under the Lord, 100% effort. That's what we need to do in light of these things, or what's coming upon this earth, because we need to let them have a glimpse of what this Jesus is all about. And this should be the place where they're looking for love. This is where love should be. Love one another as I have loved you, and by this all people know you are my disciples. So when the, when, the, when the crisis evangelist, when the Lord starts doing his thing and bringing on this, this, this the disaster that's about to hit this world, we're ready for them, okay? And also re, re, be comforted, though, that we're not going to go through the tribulation period. This is, we're going to be delivered from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. 2 Thessalonians 2, again, the Holy Spirit who dwells us must be removed before Antichrist can manifest himself. So Revelation 6 to 18, you don't see the church anywhere until chapter 19 when she comes back with Christ. And so we want to call when people, are, when their lives are in disarray and if we have a crisis, which could very well happen with this next election because somebody's not going to be happy and I hope it's not civil war or violence in the street, but we can give people some answers, okay? And we can save them from the wrath to come and not to mention the wrath in the lake of fire, by knowing these things and evangelizing and telling them there's a way out. And yes, this world is headed for disaster. Everybody in this country and around the world inherently knows there's something wrong with this world and it's not gonna end well. But we, we know that there's a light that shines bright, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so let us, our light, shine before all people. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson will be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, our great King and Savior. We thank you and praise you. We can't thank you enough, Father, for all that you've done for us and blessing us and all the wonderful things that we have. And we just pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people and help us to apply it in our own lives. And I pray that each person was spoken to individually and all of us as a corporate unit. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to sing us a song and get us out of here. Okay. <clears throat> so I got my prediction for the Super Bowl. Write it down. Chiefs 31, 49ers 13, okay? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done On earth as it is in heaven
come Thy will be done On earth as it is in heaven Oh, look at it. 